Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Welcome to A.T. Stewart Ministries, How to Preach Expository Sermons. Expository Preaching, Lesson Number 6. These lessons are brought to you by A.T. Stewart Ministries. It exists to bring glory to God by feeding those who hunger for the meat of God's Word in order that they might grow into Christ-likeness. Also, we provide free sermons that are biblical, relevant, and practical. We have already posted Five lessons on expository preaching. I would invite you to find those at sermonaudio.com. You can go to atstuart.sermonaudio.com and under series, look under expository preaching lessons and you will find those lessons. As we begin today, let's just review our definition of expository preaching again. An expository sermon is a sermon whose structure is determined by a scriptural unit of thought, whose substance is determined by a thorough exegesis of the text and the congregation, and whose success is dependent on the Spirit of God, empowering the servant of God to explain, illustrate, and apply the truth of God in such a way that the voice of God is heard, the glory of God is seen, and the will of God is obeyed. You will remember our illustration of the swimming pool and the furniture around the swimming pool and the diving board. Uh, The swimming pool represents the sermon itself. Uh, Some preachers preach a sermon and the diving board is where the text is and they simply read the text and then jump into the sermon which is a pool and never return to the text. And you wonder what did the text have to do with the sermon? How does it figure into it at all? And that is not an expository sermon. Other preachers may treat the text like pool furniture. They may read the text and then they'll jump into the pool and swim around in the sermon and then they might go back and visit the text for a moment and then they jump back in the pool and swim around and again you think, what does this have to do with the text? He's telling stories. Uh, He may be reading other passages of Scripture. But you're thinking, what does this have to do with the text? That is not an expository sermon. In an expository sermon, the sermon is the text, and the text is the sermon. You read the text, you explain the text, you apply the text. That's the basic definition of expository preaching. You read the text, and then you spend the sermon is explaining the text using illustrations, you might use other passages of scripture, but you are exposing the truth of the text. You're not running around trying to tell a bunch of stories about other things, but you're staying in the text, explaining it, illustrating it, and then applying the text. So that's a good way for you to get a grasp of expository preaching. You are spending the sermon in the text, explaining it, applying it, talking about it, helping people understand it, teaching the truth of it. 
the principles, the timeless principles of the text, and then applying it to their lives. Now we said the first step in the development of expository sermon is prayer. And we spent a lesson talking about that and what that meant. And now the second step is to select the text. What are you going to be preaching? And I said to you that it needs to be a unit of thought. Again, lesson one, we dealt with that can be a verse. It can be several verses. It can be a paragraph. It could even be a whole chapter. But it is a unit of thought. Well, how do you, do you come up with what you're going to be preaching on any given Lord's Day? Well, if you're preaching through a book, then obviously you would take the next section in the book. If you're preaching through the Gospel of John and you have spent the first uh, week preaching the first ten verses, then you would pick up the next section uh, the next week. Also, as you are reading that section, you need to be sensitive to what is God saying to you in that passage. What truths are warm in your heart in that passage? Now, I know many times as I'm preaching through a book and the passage before me, I read it the first time and it just doesn't yield any uh, truth that warms my heart or speaks to me. I'll read through it again. And you need to read through a passage oh, seven, eight, ten times, praying over it, praying through it. Uh, and then as I begin to do my study of the passage, God begins to speak to me in that passage and begins to show me truth that does begin to stir my heart uh, and begins to warm my heart. And from that, the message flows. If it doesn't warm your heart, it's probably not going to warm anybody else's heart. If you can't get excited about the truth of the passage, then probably nobody else will either. And so if you're preaching through a book, like you're pastor in a church and you're going through a book, then you take what's next in the book. And then in that passage, as you are understanding it and preparing to expound on it, then God will begin to speak to your heart and show you the areas he would want you to emphasize in that passage. Also, it might be, again, what makes sense. If you're preaching through Matthew 13 that has a list of parables, then you would take the next parable. If it's a narrative passage, then you would take the next narrative. If you're preaching through Psalms, then you would probably take the next Psalm, unless you were doing a series on perhaps the royal Psalms, then you would take the next royal Psalm. Uh, again, if you are preaching through a book, you might take the next paragraph, or it could be the next unit of thought, like in Colossians 1.15, about the richest passage of, on Christology. Uh, you might just be taking a part of that verse. Uh, Christ is the head of the church. You might take that and expound on what that means. As long as you're picking a unit of thought. Now I want to talk to the person who is not pastoring a church, even as I am not at this point. I'm retired, but I get invited to go and speak at churches. Well, obviously I can't preach through a book when I go on a Sunday. And so how do I come up with what the Lord would have me to preach on any given Sunday in any given church. 
Uh, so if you're not preaching through a book, or if you are a guest speaker in a church and you're only going to be there one week or perhaps even two or three weeks, then how do you know what God would have you to preach in that week? Well, I think one thing to ask is, what is God saying to you in your life? What's God doing in your life? And how has He been speaking to you? And what truth is He revealing to you through what you're going through in your own life? Also, as you're having your daily time in the Word of God, as you come across a passage that might stir you, then you need to jot that down on a notepad. Jot down the passage, and then jot down what stirred you about it, what God said to you. Because there will be weeks that you'll need to have a sermon, and you just won't have one. You can go back, pick up that notebook, go back to a passage that God spoke to you, that He stirred your heart in, that He warmed to your heart, uh, and that will be a seed from which a sermon will grow. And so you can ask, God, what are you doing in my life? What are you speaking, truth are you speaking into my life? What passage of Scripture have you been stirring into my life? That's why we need to be continually studying and reading God's Word. Not just for sermon preparation, but as you're spending time with God in His Word, that's where God deals with us, and that's where He teaches us and molds our life into the image of Christ and helps us understand the difficulties and hardships and what we're going through in our life. So you ask those questions. What passages of Scripture is God particularly warming up in my heart? Uh, now, when you, someone like me who's been preaching for over 40 years, uh, literally there are probably a thousand or more sermons that I have done and have in my sermon files. Well, how do I know what God would have me to preach when I go to a church? Well, again, I pray, I seek the Lord. Uh, if possible, analyze the congregation. What are the needs of the congregation? Now, there are certain needs that particular congregations might have. But then there are other needs that every congregation has. A sermon on forgiveness, the need to forgive others. Every congregation needs that sermon. We all have been hurt by people. We all need to exercise forgiveness and not hold on to a bitter spirit. So that's a message that will apply to everyone, the need for forgiveness. Uh, and so you ask, what does this particular congregation need? Maybe the, someone who is a member there has alerted you to some issues going on in the church. Maybe there's conflict and they need a sermon on uh, unity, on oneness, on peace. Uh, so analyze the congregation. Again, if you don't know the congregation that well, then as you're talking to the Lord and praying about the sermon, see what truth, what message, what previous sermon he brings up to your mind or he may bring a passage that you haven't preached on and want you to develop a message out of that passage. Uh, but you've got to be sensitive to the Lord. You've got to uh, ask him to show you and what warms your heart, what stirs you. 
Again, as I'm looking over a message that perhaps I've preached and thinking, well, maybe this is what God would have me to speak, if it just does not do anything for me, if it does not stir my heart at all, if I do not sense my uh, spirit warmed and stirred by this sermon, then I lay it aside. Because, again, if it doesn't stir me, it's probably not going to stir anybody else. But then as I'm looking over another sermon and it begins to uh, speak to me, the truth of it begins to stir my heart. I begin to get excited about the truth of it. I can see preaching that message and, and I begin to get uh, enthusiastic about preaching it then I sense that that is a passage that God would want me to preach to that church. One that has that is stirring me, one that is moving me, one that begins, as you might say, to burn in my bones. There's a truth there that God would have me to share with the people. And so there's no set formula that I can give you uh, other than seek the Lord, Stay in the Word. What truth, what passages are moving you? Is God sensing you? Since God is speaking to you, stirring your heart, uh, giving you a desire to proclaim the truth of that passage, and then go with that passage. So again, it's a thing that you need to spend time with God in His Word to determine. But there is no experience like knowing that God has given you a word for a particular congregation and you have the privilege of proclaiming that word. I mean, when your bones are burning because there's a message that you know God has for a particular people on a particular day, that is the most joyful preaching that there is. But the reality is that doesn't happen every Sunday. In fact, it doesn't happen that often. Yes, you'll get stirred. Yes, you'll realize this is the truth that the people need to hear. This is God's Word. God will use it, but your bones will not be burning. But when they do, seize the opportunity and preach it in the power of God's Spirit with all the enthusiasm that God gives you. So the second step is to select the text that you will be preaching. Now the third step is you study the passage. You've got to know what it says. Use the grammatical historical approach as you study the passage. In other words, you go back and determine what was the original meaning of the passage. What was the authorial intent of this passage? What would the original readers have understood this passage to mean? And so you look at the words of the passage, you look at the context of the passage, uh, and you seek to determine its original meaning. Now there are many tools that you can use. Uh, if you don't have your own tools, there are a couple of, I've given you a couple of uh, websites here that, ha that have many tools that you can use. You might want to pause the video and jot down uh, these titles for those of you who are just listening. It's www.biblestudytools.com or www.studylight.com. And you can have many tools there 
if you don't have your own tools. But I would encourage you to begin to develop your own books and tools that can be used. And I will be sharing with you a little later a couple of books that I have found to be very helpful uh, in my study uh, and prep sermon preparation throughout the years. Now, as you're talking about studying the Bible, it's important that you have a good translation of the Bible. The English Bible is a translation, and therefore it is only the Word of God to the extent that the translation you have is faithful to the original Hebrew of the Old Testament and the Greek of the New Testament. Now, there are several different philosophies of biblical translation. There is the word-for-word -word philosophy that seeks to be as literal as possible to take the word in the Hebrew or the Greek and then match it with an English word. And then there is the thought-for-thought -thought philosophy of translation that simply says, what is the thought of this passage? And then let's reproduce that thought in modern English. And then there's the paraphrase that is very loose, uh, such as the Living Bible and today's message. Now, I personally think that you need to use a word-for-word -word translation as you study the passage. You need to get back as close as you can to the original Hebrew of the Old Testament and Greek of the New Testament. Now, I have given you an orange box that contains the translations that uh, are built toward a word-for-word -word or literal uh, method of translation. The New American Standard Bible, as you see, is far to the left. It is a very literal translation. Uh, I like it. It is one of my favorite. It is the one I use the most when I preach and when I study. And then you have the New American Standard updated. And this is the one I use. Uh, it just changes some of the thou's and the these to modern language, you and, and they. And then you have the King James translation and the New King James translation. And the King James, again, is a word-for-word -word translation. Although I do not think that the manuscripts, the Textus Receptus, that is used to translate the King James Version or the New King James Version is as accurate and as good a manuscripts as those used for the New American Standard and the English Standard Version Bible. Now, the two Bibles that I would recommend today, it would be the New American Standard Updated Version, and it would be the English Standard Version. Now, on the chart that you see on the page, the numbers to the right represent the reading level of these translations. Like the New American Standard is geared toward 11th grade reading level. The English Standard Version is geared toward an 8th grade reading level. Uh, the King James is geared toward a college level of reading. The New King James 
a ninth grade level of reading. And so as you prepare to do your study, it is very important that you choose a good English translation of the Bible. And here is um, examples of what I think are good translations. Now let's move to the actual study of the scripture, the interpretation of the scripture known as hermeneutics, the grammatical historical method. Now as the name implies, this method of interpretation focuses attention not only on the literary forms, but upon the grammatical constructions and the historical context out of which the scriptures were written. Now the grammatical historical approach has three divisions. You have first the observation phase. What do I see? This is where you look at the passage to observe what's there. And then you have the second stage, which is what does it mean? Just because you know what it says doesn't mean you know what it means. I know what my wife says a lot of the times, but I don't always know what she means. And then you have the application. How does it work? How does it the truth apply in my situation? Now let's spend a few moments looking at each of these three phases of the grammatical historical approach. First one, observation. As you begin your Bible study, always pray asking the Holy Spirit to give you insights and wisdom. Psalm 119 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. You and I are not capable in our own human intelligence to understand the deep truths of God's Word. There is a level of spiritual truth that the natural man cannot understand. It goes beyond simply the facts of the Bible. And you and I as Christians need the Holy Spirit to give us insight and wisdom to illuminate the truth of the Scriptures to us. And so, again, we should always begin in praying as we come to God's Word to understand it. Then you need to do a historical contextual synopsis of the book that your passage is in. You need to understand things about the book and not just the one passage that you're looking at because you got to understand the context of it. Uh, look at the, the headings, the date, who wrote the book, when was it written, what's the historical or setting of the book, what was the purpose, the occasion of the book, who was it written to. Uh, all of these can be found in a good study Bible. Uh, at the beginning of each book of the Bible, it will give you all this information. Or you can go to a Bible dictionary. It will give you this information as well. Or a good commentary on the book in the introduction will give you this information. And again, this is simply helpful for you to be able to better interpret the text when you understand the book that the text is in. For instance, the Gospel of John clearly in chapter 20 says these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in his name you might have life eternal. 
And so John's book is an evangelistic book. He says the signs that are in the book, the miracles that are in the book, were written to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so if you are in particular looking at one of those signs, then you need to say, how does this sign reveal Jesus as the Messiah? John believed through the Holy Spirit that this particular miracle uh, revealed that truth. We need to look at it and see what it is. Uh, same thing about Mark's gospel, for example, shows Jesus as God's servant. It's a very hands-on gospel. Jesus is very active in that. Again, knowing that will help you in the interpretation of it. Matthew's gospel was written to Jewish people. Uh, and he uses a lot of examples of prophecies that are fulfilled uh, in that book. And so again, as you're reading that, interpreting that, take that into consideration. Now thirdly, you need to read and reread the chapter that the text is in. Prayerfully meditate and reflect on that chapter as you're reading it. Write down thoughts, initial impressions, questions that might come up as you read the chapter. Read the chapter before and the chapter after the chapter your text is in. Noting the context. What's going on? Why is this passage where it is in the book? Uh, how does it follow what came before it? All of this will be key in helping you correctly interpret the passage. Now, the fourth step in your observation is to look for key words and phrases. Look for repetition of key words and phrases in your text. Notice if there's any contrasting words and phrases. Look for lists of words or phrases or thoughts. And particularly take note of terms of conclusion like therefore or finally. And go out and find out why he has placed that therefore or finally in the text. And then you want to analyze the structure of your text. Find the grammatical structure, the subject, the verbs, the adjectives, the adverbs. If you can diagram the passage, that's even better. You can diagram the sentences in the passage to really see where the subject and verbs and adjectives and adverbs and participles and all of those things to help you understand what's being said. Also, I encourage you to outline the passage just from the text. Just get an outline uh, of the text, a textual outline. This will be the basis for your sermon outline. It's not exactly the same necessarily, but it will help you get an understanding of the passage. What's the main truth of the passage? How is that truth illustrated, explained, what's said about it? All of that will come out as you outline the passage. And, and this takes time, but this is very crucial to you getting a handle on the truth of the passage. And then find the literary structure. What are the main thoughts? How does a passage flow? Are there questions answered in the passage? Are the questions raised and are they answered? I'll give you an example from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us, 
And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Now what do you see in that passage? What structure do you see in that passage? You have one command and two reasons for the command. The command, praise the Lord, all nations. Lord him all peoples. That's not two commands. That's Hebrew parallelism. Praise the Lord all nations is parallel to laud him all peoples. And then he gives the two reasons why we should praise the Lord. Number one, for his loving kindness is great toward us. And the second reason, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. So there you have your outline for your sermon. One command, two reasons. We're commanded to praise the Lord. Explain what that means, how we're all called to laud him all nations. And then give the reasons. Talk about his loving kindness. Explain it, that it's great toward us. Give examples of it. And then the second uh, point under the reasons for praising the Lord would be his truth is everlasting. So again, that's just an example of how a uh, passage and the structure of the passage comes out. And then you need to discover the literary form or genre of the passage. This will inform your interpretation greatly. You interpret Psalms, which are poetry, different than you would interpret the Gospels. Proverbs are interpreted differently than history and prophecy. So you have the genre of Gospels, the Epistles, you have Revelation, uh, biography and history, eschatology and prophecy, wise sayings. So take a moment to find out the genre of the passage that you are preaching. It's also helpful to relive the atmosphere of the passage. Try to put yourself back into the context and situation, if it's a narrative passage, in which the event took place. And it's amazing how using some of your imagination you can get a deeper understanding of the text. For example, over in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, uh, it had to do with the disciples being in the middle of a storm. Let me just read that. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up, and he rebuked the wind and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? As you're looking at that passage, use your imagination to put yourself in that boat on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of that storm. Take time to let your mind feel the, the wind blowing, uh, hear the wind blowing. Uh, feel the mist of the water from the waves hitting in your face. Feel the waves 
coming over into the boat. Imagine the boat filling up with water. Imagine the horror that you would feel thinking that uh, the boat might fill up and sink or might be capsized. And take time to put yourself in that position and feel what they felt. Smell the water. Uh, smell what they would have smelled. And then picture Jesus there sleeping and waking him up. And, and then simply by speaking a word, he calms the sea. Imagine how that would feel as the words are spoken. And suddenly the wind stops. The waves stop. And everything is just as calm as can be. How amazed you would be. Another example is over in Mark chapter 2. This is the passage where the man was paralyzed and his friends let him down through the roof. And put yourself in that position, uh, in that situation where you are there in that house. And let me just read this passage. And again, try to relive it like you are actually there. When he had come back to Capernaum several days after... It was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. So here you are in a crowded house. You are inside the house. People are so crowded, touching you, all crowded around you. You can't even move. People are standing outside. The room is totally filled. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now notice, here you are in this room, and all of a sudden this dust and dirt starts coming down from the roof. And what are you going to try to do? You're going to try to move back. But you can't move back because you're packed in there with people like sardines. And so everybody starts kind of moving back. And then suddenly you see this man being lowered down. Well, obviously there has to be room for him to be lowered down. And so everybody begins to push back. And again, you see this man lowered down. And he's a paralytic. And then we pick up the passage. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So you're there in that crowded room, and you hear Jesus say this, and then you hear this mumbling, this murmuring, and you sense the tension in the air. How does that make you feel? You sense the, the hostility that these scribes are having toward Jesus that they have thought he has blasphemed and the punishment for blasphemy is to be stoned to death. How does that make you feel when you know that this undertone of hostility is brewing? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, 
He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up his pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. You're in the crowd. Jesus tells him to take up his pallet. And all of a sudden you see this man who's been paralyzed stand up. Imagine the amazement. And again, you have to spread. People have to spread so he can get out. And it's so crowded. People are, are bumping against each other and trying to make a way so this man can pick up his pallet and leave. And then everybody just breaks out, everyone except the scribes, of course, and just glorifying God and praising God that this has happened. So it can be very beneficial if you allow your imagination, don't run wild, but allow your imagination to put yourself back in that situation. Now stay with the scriptures. Let the scripture guide your imagination. Don't interject things into the situation that the scripture doesn't indicate are there. And don't base your interpretation solely on your imagination, but your imagination can help you understand the setting in the context of the passage so that you can, I think, uh, arrive at a richer understanding of the passage. At this point, I want to give you an example of marking up a passage and things to look for uh, in a passage as you are studying the text. What I do sometimes is I will simply uh, copy and paste from a Bible software program I have, uh, the passage, and then copy it to a Word document and give several lines, spaces between the lines, so that I have an opportunity to, to write and make notes and to jot down. And you can see from this situation uh, where the notes have been written and things have circled and uh, keywords and key phrases where pleasing is used here and pleasing is used again there and here you have will used a couple of times and then another time so uh, again you may want to just pause uh, the lesson at this point and take an opportunity to uh, study what's being done here and how uh, you can go about observing the text and making notes as you go. Another example of this is a passage that I did in uh, Psalm 145. Again, as I was studying this passage and looking for the structure of the passage, I began to see that it could be broken down into three sections. The first one, what I will do, the second section, what the godly is to do. And the third section, what God will do. Uh, the first section, what I will do. I will extol you, O God, my King. I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, highly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. And I have... Uh, highlighted the term great and green. One generation shall praise your works to another. And you'll see that I have, each time the word praise is used, I have used uh, blue lettering. 
your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall eagerly, men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. So again, you can see how I have highlighted certain words and the things that I will do. I will bless the Lord. I shall declare the Lord. I will meditate uh, on his abundant goodness. And then verses 8 through 13 talk about what the godly will do. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, talk of your power, to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts, and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So here you have what the godly will do. And again, I've circled the keywords kingdom and uh, dominion and uh, highlighted the words bless and talk. And uh, Now let's talk about what God will do starting in verse 14. You see, each time the word Lord is used, I've highlighted that in yellow. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who bow down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord's righteous in all his ways, kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. So here again is just a way of going through and observing the passage, noting key words that are used over and over again. Verbs are very important to note uh, because they give you the idea of the action that's going on and then the subjects. Commands that are in a passage, you should make note of those uh, because, again, if God is commanding us, we want to take time uh, to see that. Uh, also, you will want to, I think, see word pictures uh, and things of that nature. Uh, also, I want to give you an example of a study I did a series of sermons on the book of Jude. And I took uh, a page from my Bible, made a copy of it, and just began to work through the book of Jude, which is only one chapter. Uh, but it began to circle key words and phrases. I uh, wrote over in the margin, I put down sermon thoughts. Uh, the first sermon, a call to arms, uh, the army. Uh, Beginning, the bond servant Lord Jesus Christ, or brother James, to those who are called, uh, the beloved in God, the Father, and kept in our Lord Jesus. So the army, uh, the commander, the soldiers, the call, uh, the enemy, is talked about in verse uh, 4. Uh, the call in verse 3, 
Uh, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. That's the call. And then the enemy is listed in verse uh, 4. Uh, and I have put the ungodly, the deceitful, the condemned, uh, the enemy of God, as grace and denying Jesus' deity. So again, as I was studying this passage, this outline kind of came to my mind. Uh, and then the victory, verses 5 through 7. Again, I would suggest you stop the video in a moment and just take a chance to look through this. I wrote the books that I was using to study uh, as well and some introductory comments uh, that I had studied from uh, uh, Word Study Bible or uh, Bible Dictionary and I put those up there. Uh, and then as I continued with that page, uh, again, I continued with uh, some other sermons. Uh, again, you want to see key phrases and words. Uh, if you're preaching, say, verse 11 again, uh, Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain, uh, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now, you've got to take time to explain that to your congregation. What's the way of Cain? What's the era of Balaam? What's the rebellion of Korah? So you're going to have to go back to the Old Testament, determine what those are, and then when you are preaching that text, you will need to bring those up because they will be very important uh, to explaining these false teachers and what they have done. And as you can see, I have written some notes on the era of Balaam uh, and what that is. Uh, in Cain's way, which was one of unbelief, uh, and again, the rebellion, rebellion of Korah uh, when they rebelled against Moses. So again, uh, just an example. Another, as we went over to uh, the continuation of the book, again, continued to uh, highlight key words and phrases, connecting thoughts and phrases. Uh, picking up on parallel passages that I thought would shed light on the text. Uh, I like to bring those in in sermons as they apply. Uh, and again, this was the fourth sermon, Do Not Stumble. Uh, and you can see uh, how that was developed. I'd stop the video at this point and just take a moment to look through and understand uh, what I have done. So this concludes the observation stage. So the next step is to seek to understand what is meant by what is said. The observation is all about what's there. What's the writer saying? But the next step is what does it mean? Seek to understand what the writer meant. And at this point, it is important to ask questions of the text. You in many respects are like a detective uh, and you are coming to a text seeking to find out what's there. Reading between the lines, understanding uh, the truth that's deeper than simply what might be on the surface. Or you're like a miner. You're mining for a gold nugget in that passage. Uh, so you need to ask many questions about the text. Uh, the who, what, when, why, how, I mean, why did Paul say it this way? 
Now, why didn't he say it another way? Who was he writing to? Uh, what was he trying to accomplish? Or if it's in the Gospels, why did Matthew put this story where he put it in his Gospel? Why does it follow the story before it? As you know from your study of the Gospels, they are not written chronologically. Their view of history was not like ours, where it's simply linear, and we think everything should be chronological. They wrote history to express a particular point of view or a particular theme, and therefore they would take events that supported their theme and put them together even though they would not be in chronological sequence that was not important to them what was important is how these events uh, supported the premise that they were presenting and so when you're looking at the gospels you need to say well, what preceded what event preceded this what is after? Why did the writer put it where he put it? And what? how does it fit into what else is there? And why did he include what he included? Particularly when you have parallel passages in the Gospels, uh, particularly the synoptics, I mean, you'll have a passage where a whole sentence or two in a dialogue might be left out. Well, why did this writer not include this? Why did he leave it out? Why did the other writer include it? I mean, it's the same conversation. Uh, that can help you understand his purpose. So you want to ask many questions to the text and just write those down. Just as, let them flood your mind. Don't worry about answering the questions. Just come up with the questions. Just bombard the text with all these questions uh, to help you get a grasp of what's there. And then you will answer the questions. Now, many of your questions will come from your observation, and many of your answers will be in your observation as well. Again, there will be cross-references that will help you to answer some of those questions. And it is at this time that you will go to your commentaries and your lexicons for the purpose of answering your questions. Now, some students make the mistake of going to the commentaries and lexicons and word study books first, before they have wrestled with the passage themselves, before they have wrestled with the text. So I think it's important, first of all, though, that you wrestle with the text yourself to seek to understand what's there, to seek to see the structure of the text, to seek to find the uh, timeless principles that are in the text, the eternal truth that's in the text, what was the main point that the uh, writer was making, uh, and then once you think you have determined that, then it's time to bring in the commentaries, lexicons, word studies to help you understand if you have correctly interpreted the passage. So that is the interpretation phase, and then we move to the third phase of the grammatical historical approach, and that is application. How does this passage apply to the lives of those that will be receiving the truth of it? The last step in the process of the grammatical historical approach to interpretation is application. You must always apply the truth uh, to the listeners. And as you are preparing your sermon, you will want to keep in mind the congregation 
and you have done a thorough exegesis not only of the text but of the congregation and therefore you're aware of their needs and the Holy Spirit will use that to help inform your application of that text uh, to that particular congregation. Someone has said there's only one correct interpretation of a text, but there are many applications to the text. And so as you are preparing the message, as you are studying the message, uh, keep the congregation in mind and applications will begin to flow. It's important that we not simply bring the truth of the text out in your sermon, but you need to apply it. I've heard preachers say, well, I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to apply the text. Well, that is not an appropriate way to uh, deal with application. You have a responsibility as the preacher to bring forth some application of the truth to the congregation. Of course, the Holy Spirit's not limited to your application, and he will often apply the truth to people's lives in different ways than what you have brought forth, but nevertheless, I think as a preacher, we are responsible to bring the truth into the 21st century, and what does the truth say to us today? Uh, you have given them the what, the truth, now you must give them the so what. Uh, what does this truth say to us today? And a passage of scripture that I like to use as a framework of my application is 2 Timothy 3.16 which says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So here you have four areas that you can use to help frame your application. Uh, is it profitable for teaching? Is this verse have something that's needed for reproof? Is there something for correction? Is there something for training in righteousness? Now let's look at each of these individually. First, you ask yourself, teaching, is there a teaching or truth to be learned in this passage? Now, to correctly apply doctrinal teaching, you must consider several things. The national setting of the passage, the cultural setting, the historical setting, the biblical setting, and the underlying principle. Is it a principle that applies to both the church today uh, and to the church when it was originally written, or if it's an Old Testament, is it valid for the church as it was valid for the nation of Israel? And the national, let's go back, the national setting. Uh, preachers make mistakes when they take the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and try to just bring it, uh, car blanc, into the New Covenant. Uh, you take the curses and blessings of Deuteronomy, that were written in particular to the nation of Israel, had to do with their remaining faithful to God and staying in the promised land. And you cannot just take those and bring those over into the new covenant and say that they apply to the Christian or to the church. Uh, that's a mishandling, misapplication of the truth of God. So you've got to look at that particular passage and say, does this speak an eternal underlying principle? Uh, is there a truth uh, that is valid for the New Covenant, or is this simply an Old Testament promise? What I see preachers doing sometimes is they will take the promises in the Old Covenant that have to do with remaining in the promised land and the material prosperity that God will give those who are faithful, 
Again, you have those blessings in Deuteronomy. Uh, and take those and bring them over to the New Covenant and say, God wants you to be materially prosperous uh, in the New Covenant as well. And that's not at all what the New Covenant promises. The New Covenant promises suffering for those who are faithful to walk with the Lord. It doesn't promise material prosperity. And so you need to be careful. Now, there are biblical principles in the Old Covenant that can be brought over, particularly moral principles uh, and moral truths. Uh, that can be brought over into the New Covenant. But when you're teaching and preaching an Old Testament passage, you must particularly be careful in the application to make sure that you are correctly understanding what that truth says to the Christian or to the New Covenant uh, church. Also, you must look at the cultural setting of what's being said. Uh, for instance, over in 1 Peter chapter 3, he talks about women adorning themselves. Uh, he says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Now, it would be wrong to take that passage and say women are not to braid their hair, they're not to wear gold jewelry, they're not to put on dresses. That's not what Peter is saying. He's saying that their adornment must not be external, what they wear, but they should be more concerned about their inward adornment, uh, the person of their heart, uh, the qualities of a quiet and gentle spirit. They should be known for their good works. Now you need to go back to the culture and say, what, what did the uh, braided hair and what did the fine gold jewelry represent? And it represented someone who was dressing to be seen, uh, trying to impress people by their outward appearance. And so that's the principle, not that you're not to wear dresses, not to braid your hair, but you're not to dress so that you bring attention to yourself. You're not to dress to try to impress people. Uh, with what you look like outwardly, but people should be impressed by your inward adornment, your quiet and gentle spirit. Again, the historical setting uh, should be looked into. Is it speaking to the nation of Israel? Is it speaking to someone else? Is it speaking to the church? Uh, was this something that uh, the early Christians uh, uh, had to deal with that we don't deal with today, uh, such as eating meat sacrificed to idols? Uh, that's you know, today is not an issue. Uh, and so you've got to take the principle of the passage, not causing the weaker brother to stumble, not doing things that would uh, maybe make a weaker Christian stumble, not using your Christian liberty in such a way, uh, but uh, taking the weaker brother into consideration. And you hold him back from things you might do. Uh, also, uh, look at the biblical setting. Again, where does it end the process of progressive revelation. Uh, you shouldn't take an Old Testament passage and interpret it in the light of progressive revelation and think that, the, uh, that Abraham understood everything about the coming of Christ. Uh, and when the ram was in the thicket there, when he was told to sacrifice Isaac uh, and 
God provided a ram, it would be incorrect to assume that Abraham understood that Jesus was going to come, that God was going to send his son someday, and that son would be a substitute and would die for the sins of his people. Uh, now, Abraham just didn't have that understanding. What he did understand was that Jehovah Jireh, that God saw and God provided, that God was faithful to provide what was needed. And he believed God would keep his promise, that he would have many descendants. The writer of Hebrews says, even if, if God had to raise Isaac from the dead or from the ashes, that Abraham believed he would do so. Now, that we know from Scripture. Uh, but to say Abraham understood about Christ and his coming from that, as you're teaching that passage, would be incorrect. Now, you would be okay in the application to say, now, in this we have a beautiful illustration of what God has done in Christ, uh, and you can bring it to the cross, apply it to the cross, but just don't give the impression or say that Abraham understood all of that truth. But since we do have the Bible, uh, the complete revelation of God, then we can look back into the Old Testament and show the truth that's there. Uh, but just don't uh, get ahead of the revelation as God has given it. And then the underlying biblical principle. Uh, what uh, is that truth? Is it a truth that is applicable to both uh, the people that it was originally uh, applied to, and is it, is it applicable to us today? So you would want to see what's in this passage at, uh, in doctrinal truth that I should teach. Now let me just give a word of uh, interpretation. Uh, doctrinal teaching passages such as the letters of Paul always take precedent, take weight over narrative or historical passages. And give you an example. Uh, I've heard people go to Acts and from the book of Acts conclude that if a person is born again, they will speak in tongues. Because in Acts, that's what you see happening. When people are born again, they speak in tongues. That was the outward evidence that there had been an inward change. And so people will take that historical passage, uh, those passages in Acts, and from that set forth a principle that if you're born again, you're going to speak in tongues. But yet, what you must do is you must go to the teaching passages of Scripture because the purpose of Acts was to show the acts of the Holy Spirit in the uh, early church days, not to give us doctrinal uh, truth to, to use to form doctrine. But Paul's letters, his teaching letters, are given for us to develop uh, doctrine. So go to what Paul says about speaking in tongues. And he says over in 1 Corinthians, not everyone speaks in tongues, do they? Not everyone interprets, do they? And so Paul in a teaching passage clearly tells us not everyone speaks in tongues. And so you would take a teaching passage would have more weight and you would take it over a narrative passage that you are reading into it and coming up with what you think is a principle from what is happening. And all the historical passages are doing is they are telling us what happened. Uh, 
uh, in the New Covenant. They're telling us what happened, particularly the book of Acts. They're telling us what happened. Uh, they're not trying to develop doctrinal principles. Now, again, many times or sometimes in Acts you do see uh, things happening and you can find in the epistles and in the teaching passages of Scripture truth to back up those principles. But what we see in Acts is the early church was moving from being a Jewish church to a Gentile setting and bringing Gentiles in. And so God was giving a way for the Jews to see that he was indeed bringing salvation to the Gentiles. And the speaking of tongues was a very visible way to show the Jewish people that God was indeed saving the Gentiles as well. And so there was a reason for that. But since that is not the case today, as far as Jews and Gentiles are concerned, the church is mainly a Gentile church now, you cannot say from the book of Acts that if a person is saved, he must speak in tongues. So you need to be careful and always interpret narrative passages in the light of teaching passages, particularly those that deal with that particular truth. The second aspect of the application is reproof. Does this passage reprove you? Does it expose a sin in your life or the life of the congregation? Does it show you something you're doing that's wrong? Does it show you a command that you're not obeying? Does this passage reveal any wrong attitudes or motives? So as you are studying that passage, you will want to put this question to it and these questions to the passage uh, to see the application of reproof. And then there's thirdly, correction. Does the passage show how to correct what is wrong? Uh, is there something that, and over, I'm reminded over in Ephesians where Paul says, let the one who lies stop lying and start telling the truth. Okay, it tells you what you need to do, start telling the truth. He says, let the one who steals stop stealing, start working and sharing with other people. Again, it tells you something that you need to do to correct what is wrong. And so it does this passage Tell me something that I need to do to correct something that I'm doing that is wrong. So is there the correction there? And then fourthly, uh, instruction in righteousness. Does this passage show you how to live righteously? Is there a new truth to be obeyed? Is there a new commandment to be acted upon? Are there any new insights that you need to live by? What does this passage say or does it say anything about how you can live a more righteous life and that you can bring your life into conformity with the will of God? So if you will take these four areas and use them as a guideline for your application, I think it will help you arrive at good application uh, of your message. Again, as we will see in later lessons, your application may come at each point you may apply or you may use your application at the end. Again, it's as a passage lends itself, some passages may lend themselves to application after each point. Others you may wait until you reach the end of the sermon. I mentioned to you earlier that I would share with you books that I particularly recommend 
that you get a hold of that will help you uh, in your study of the Bible. And this is the first one, Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks and William Hendricks. Now, this is a tremendously good and helpful book for following this grammatical historical approach to interpretation, the observation, interpretation, application. Uh, I would recommend this book probably uh, above any other book on this method uh, of interpreting the Bible. And it's written so any person with a high school education can understand it. So don't be afraid of that. It is very basic. It is very thorough. It has exercises that you can do to help you. I would recommend you get this book. And then another book that I recommend uh, is Grasping God's Word. Now this is a tremendously, again, helpful book about a hands-on approach to reading and interpreting and in applying the Bible. Now this was written on a college level, and so you don't have to be a graduate student again to understand it. Uh, but it is helpful to realize the genre of the passage. It gives you principles for interpreting various genre of the passages. It um, helps you to uh, understand the basic principles of biblical interpretation. I would highly recommend this book. And you can find it, all these books, on Amazon. So I would encourage you to get this, Grasping God's Word by Scott Duvall and Daniel Hayes. Again, you might want to stop the video and jot this down. And then I want to recommend to you a commentary series called the New Testament Commentary. I just picked up one of the books, which happens to be on Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon by William Hendrickson. Uh, and... Uh, he is, has put together this New Testament commentary, uh, but these have served me faithfully through the years. They are written from a Reformed perspective theologically, and you can trust uh, the interpretation of these. Uh, Kistamaka uh, has done some of these as well, uh, but William Hendrickson was uh, the original editor and author, and I would highly recommend his set. I have used these uh, more than any other commentaries through my 44 years of ministry. And then I would highly recommend as well John MacArthur's set of commentaries on the New Testament. Again, this is just one example, 1 Corinthians. Uh, but John MacArthur is very practical. He will help you. He will have some illustrations uh, that will help you in your sermon preparation. Uh, his commentaries are mainly the study he's done in preparation of sermons. And so they are very preacher-friendly, and they will help enrich your preaching. So I would recommend uh, the set of commentaries by John MacArthur and the set of commentaries by William Hendrickson. Again, if you have a good Bible study software, uh, Logos or some others, uh, you can usually buy uh, add-ons that will have these in them. Uh, but I would encourage you to begin to build your library. A workman is no better than his tools. 
A carpenter is no better than his tools. If all he has is a screwdriver and a hammer, he's not going to be able to do much carpentry work. So you as a pastor, as a preacher, need to begin to have a good tool set that you can use, and these will help you get started. Uh, this concludes lesson number six. Uh, I hope to be again with you next month and present another lesson on expository preaching. May God bless you, and remember, preach the word.